Hello and welcome to episode 1019 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangrass presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangrass. Hello, Jeff. Hello, how are you? All right. We're doing another team preview podcast today and... We're just going to get right into it. These preview episodes are are pretty long, so we're not going to banter about anything beforehand. Later in this episode, we're going to be talking to Zach Buchanan of the Cincinnati Inquirer about, yes, the Cincinnati Reds, long-neglected team of Effectively Wild. But first, we are going to talk about the Boston Red Sox. And to tell us about the Red Sox, who own the third-best projected record in baseball, according to Fangrass' preliminary standings and the best record in the American League, we have the esteemed Alex Spear of the Boston Globe, who just spent seven hours on a runway heading to spring training so that he could bring us all the latest tidings from Red Sox land. Hi, Alex. I'm giving you a slightly delayed tidings, but uh, but hello. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> well, what if not for you, how else would we hear about how Pablo Sandoval looks tomorrow and then the I, next day and then the next it's, day? It's an, it's an oft-overlooked phenomenon of spring training of these last few seasons since he signed with the Red Sox. So um, I'm, I, feel, I feel privileged to be able to, uh, to, to offer the latest. Have you upgraded your camera so that you can have the most viral Sandoval image of spring? It's, uh, it might justify getting Snapchat. I don't know. My, uh, my six-year-old was just digging Snapchat and it occurred to me that uh, there could be some sensationalism that's, uh, you know, that's imparted some, you know, alternative picture picture effects. And so uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. See if you can get him doing the sit and reach. <laughs> <laughs> so just, I guess, yeah. to get that stuff out of the way, because, you know, who knows? Do you feel any different? Do you feel optimistic about this, this Pablo Sandoval? I mean, I've seen one picture, you know, and we all we've all come across some sort of visual evidence. But who knows what that means? But do you? feel any different about Pablo Sandoval now than you did I don't know four months ago um four months ago no the uh well I let's let's go back like 12 months you know because he was <laughs> the uh he was the storyline of uh of all of spring training last year when mm-hmm. his when you know obviously he had far greater girth and then I was skeptical about his ability to bounce back simply because um, the history of players to just have their careers crater is not very promising you know guys who go from being above average regulars, you know, as, you know, like two to four war players who suddenly become negative war players. It, it's not good, or at least it wasn't in the sample that I could, you know, that I could discover. Um, there, there were some promising, uh, there were some promising cases like, I, I don't know, I guess if you're looking from a physique standpoint, someone like Greg Luzinski, uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, but, um, th- those cases were few. There's one more now with a guy like Hanley Ramirez having, uh-huh. uh, having come all the way back. Um, so I, I don't know, I guess that I, I am also, perhaps to a fault, I am also, uh, I am also a, a kind of optimist. I, I, I you know, I, I think that there's, there's nothing wrong with thinking that, uh, that there, there are mutable traits and, uh, and people. Um, and so why not assume that, uh, why not assume that players can bounce back from, from very bad, you know, from, from one very bad season, uh, to come, you know, to come somewhere close to what their track record says they could be. That said, uh, I am always, always, always skeptical about players coming back from significant shoulder injuries. Um, I, I think that it messes completely with their offensive approaches. At least, you know, if you look at a, at, at a limited case study of guys who have had labrum surgery, guys like, you know, Matt Kemp and 
BJ Upton and, uh, you know, Adrian Gonzalez, a, a lot of those guys never, never became the same hitter after those surgeries, or at least weren't sustainably the same pitch hitter after those surgeries as they were before it. Um, so I, I guess, uh, on the one hand, I'm open minded to the idea that Pablo Sandoval can be something, uh, akin to what he once was. On the other hand, I think that there's also reason to be cautious about, about that instead of just jumping back in and saying, well, he's going to be the same guy he was in, <laughs> let's say, 20, you know, 2014. So there's that scene in Moneyball where one time almost Red Sox GM Billy Bean, or at least the Brad Pitt version of Billy Bean, sort of disparages his scouts because he asks them, how do we replace Jason Giambi? And, or, you know, what's our problem? And they all say, well, we have to replace 38 homers and 120 something RBI. And he says, no, that's wrong. That's not our problem. And the Red Sox have to replace 38 homers and 120 something RBI from (laughs) David Ortiz. But they also did not take the tack of just signing a one-to-one David Ortiz replacement if there is such a thing. So... How are they intending to get those runs somehow, whether it's saving them or scoring them? Yeah, seem, sure seems like they've uh, they've put a lot of eggs in the saving them basket. Um, you yeah. know, between I, I mean, really, it is pretty interesting when uh, you know when kind of every major offseason acquisition was focused around uh, around run prevention. Whether it's you know Chris Sale, whose ability to do so is obvious, Tyler Thornburg uh, would seeming would have seemingly have similarly obvious traits as a uh, as a run preventer. Uh, Mitch Moreland is a first baseman. Um, gives them you know gives them a you know, Hanley Ramirez for all of the wonderful things that he did last year at the plate was in for all, like he was, he was celebrated for being, for being kind of marginally competent as a defensive player last year. Mitch Moreland represents a considerable upgrade over marginally competent, or at least, you know, he should in theory. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you know, that's, uh, that, that could be, that could be very helpful to an infield that is trying to solidify some left side of the infield equation, uh, parts of the equation with Sandoval and trying to figure out you know, whether or not Xander Bogarts is the well above average shortstop that he was in 2015 or the well below average shortstop that he was in 2014 or rather 2016. Um, so I think that there, there have been a lot of, a lot of overhauls. I mean, I think that there's a pretty decent chance that we'll, you know, that we'll once again see a pretty significant dose of Christian Vazquez catching a number of these guys, even though I know that Sande Leon enters the season as the theoretical, you know, frontline catcher. I, I just, I really think that there's going to be this great emphasis on, you know, on having really, really good defense to, you know, to kind of grind down opposing offenses to bits. And Andrew Benintendi uh, being in left field as a regular also represents a pretty significant part of that, even though uh, Benintendi's gifts are are considerable and multifarious. (laughs) I think to go back about a minute, I think you could say that Mitch Moreland uh, prevents runs in two ways. As a as a matter of fact, <laughs> uh, so you you mentioned Christian Vasquez, and so the catching position is is fascinating because of course the Red Sox have been through a few young and very exciting catchers, and then last year their catching position was saved by Sandy Leone. I would like to read two statistics. Actually, I'll do three. I'll, I'll read three statistics. They are all Sandy Leone's WRC plus marks okay. in the last three years. Uh, you already know where this is going, but just for any, anyone out there guesses. who doesn't. 
Uh, so 2014, Leon, he didn't play a lot with the Nationals, but he finished at 27. Remember, this is like OPS plus, so 100 is average, 27 is bad. So 2014, he was at 27. 2015, he halved that to 13, which is incredible. <laughs> and last year, last year he played the most. He played basically a half season equivalent, and he finished at 123. One of the greatest projection beaters of all time based on some research I haven't written about for some reason. <laughs> so what? Oh, there's, there's no that's, more. That's a great, that, I that's think the, that's about right. Yeah. What? Yeah. What, uh, <laughs> what is this? What is Sandy Leone? Well, I, I will say this. So there were some mechanical adjustments that he, you know, that that were clear, uh, you know, in terms of him being a little bit more upright that did seem to permit him to have at least in the at least for for this like magic carpet ride of about two months a far greater <laughs> ability to get the ball in the air you know he would he got there was some serious serious luck that you'll find you know you'll find some real outlier doubles of like <laughs> my guess is that the exit velocity was like 12 miles an hour uh that's a slight <laughs> exaggeration but you know these like slow motion fly balls like you know that managed to hit chalk and bounce into the stands um that you know that were nonetheless reflective of an altered skill set, namely like the ability not to hit everything as a ground ball to the second baseman. Um, and so there was something there, but I, I still, you know, but if you look at his minor league numbers from last year, they were identical to what is, you know, essentially identical to what his AAA career stat line had been, um, uh -huh. suggesting that the idea of a fundamental change may not have actually occurred. And in fact, the end of the season, I, I you know, I struggled to remember whether or not Sande Leon had a, this is a, a, only a slight exaggeration to say it's hard to remember him getting a single hit in September or October. Um, it wasn't quite that drastic, but it was, it was, it was, it sure looked a lot like the 13 and 27 seasons that you mentioned before. Um, so for that reason, look, he was, it was, it was a startling, like, it was a startling run. The Red Sox had no reason to expect he was going to do that. Uh, San Diego Leon had probably no reason to expect he was going to do that. He nonetheless <laughs> did it. Um, but I think that that's, you know, the Red Sox are in a fortunate position where they, you know, where they do have, they do still have these two catchers who have, you know, who have skills that should make them valuable in different ways that give them a pretty good fallback in case uh, Sandy Leon is not once again levitating this year. <laughs> I was writing about Leon last at the middle of last August when, you know, his numbers were insane. And I was as I was writing about him, the Red Sox were playing a game against the Yankees. And in that game, as I was writing, Sandy Leon went three for four and so i was excited that you know you always want to write about someone who's coming off like a good game if you're writing a good story he hit two opposite field bloop doubles including one of those chalk bouncers like bloopers into the seats and he had a single to second base so <laughs> i know that he like had his breakthrough but yeah i i was watching the highlights he's just so many lucky hits <laughs> yeah, but, you know, there, I mean, there was, you know, within that, like, again, like, there's, you know, there are more balls in the air, there are fewer strikeouts, I think, I'm pretty sure, this is just off the top of my head, to suggest that there was something that had been better than what he had done before in the major leagues. Mm -hmm. But again, yeah. he was performing, he was the best, I, I think that, like, by war, I think that he finished, like, top five in the majors last year <laughs> in half a season. I don't think that's happening again. 
So one more Ortiz question. Obviously, he was the Red Sox clubhouse leader. It sort of seemed like he was just Major League Baseball's clubhouse leader. Like every clubhouse, everywhere he went, he was beloved and looked up to. And Literally text got... like half of Major League Baseball. I mean, like, you yeah. know, you would roll through and like, you know, in like some like, you know, and like Mike Trout would be like, oh, yeah, I was texting Ortiz yesterday. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or like obscure player from like Panama saying the same thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right, and he got credit for sort of steering sometimes unfocused players, like, you know, Hanley Ramirez, for instance, sort of was taken under Ortiz's wing. So how do you replace that? We talked about how they replaced or didn't replace the production, but is there a new leader? Well, I mean, Dustin Pedroia has always been a, uh, has always been, he's been, always been a different kind of leader. Ortiz Ortiz's personality in Major League Baseball, to my mind, is has been unique. He was an extraordinary figure who, as you as you know, was kind of you know kind of transcended like teams in a very strange way. Where he, (laughs) you know, he was he was really like a it was it was really kind of a a great thing to watch, quite honestly. Because personally, I I think that he might have been the single most magnetic personality in Major League Baseball, you know, that I've covered, you know, in terms of crossing all all lines of you know, of socioeconomic, ethnic, you know, national derivations. It was, it was really cool. No one's going to do that. There, there are, I don't know how many of those guys I'm ever going to cover again in my life. Uh, Dustin Pedroia is nonetheless, um, you know, he is, he is someone who can certainly kind of rally his teammates and who has the credibility, the institutional credibility to be able to kind of like have whatever conversations need to be had with his teammates. Mookie Betts is, uh, has been known as that kind of a, a personality coming up through the minor leagues. It wouldn't be a shock if he was, if he took on a more, you know, a, a kind of more vocal role among his teammates. He doesn't have, I don't, he doesn't have the same public persona as Ortiz. Um, but he nonetheless, uh, among his teammates, he, he has a, a really, like a, a kind of really influential personality. If he if he ever becomes good, Blake Swihart also has had that in the past in the minor leagues. And you mentioned Benatendi, who I guess is the one player that even David Dombrowski won't trade. So <laughs> how good do you expect him to be? Was his initial 100-something plate appearances in the majors, did that raise expectations too high in the short term? Or is he actually just this good from today on? I mean, he hit... He was like one of the top three or five batters in terms of like in terms of average right out of the shoot against against right handed pitching. And I think he's really, really good. I think there's a lot of, you know, if you the, you watch the ease of his swing, he's just on time all the time uh, with what he's doing with his swing. He, he adjusts really well uh, to different pitches and different locations all over the place. That said, I think that we have to acknowledge that like the range of possible outcomes is maybe slightly greater than being like one of the best five hitters in the major pure hitters <laughs> in the major leagues yeah. against right-handed pitching. That's not a slight against him. I, I think that he has, uh, but I, I think that, I, I think that especially in Boston, like the, the hype train got away from, you know, the, the hype train was so considerable upon watching um, a relatively small sample of Xander Bogarts performing it at an unbelievable level in the 2013 postseason that it was like, okay, he's going to be like, he's obviously ready. He's already succeeded on the highest stage. And it took him a year of almost a full season of failure in order to get back to that point. Um, there, there will, Mookie Betts has gone through periods that, you know, I, I, as much as anyone, am stunned that Mookie Betts would ever struggle for a day. Uh, but, uh, but there have been, you know, there have been months where he's gone through some performance struggles and, 
I, I'm I'm willing to guess that Andrew Benintendi is going to go through uh, some different evolutions from a swing standpoint um, <laughs> and an offensive approach standpoint that uh, make him something less than you know than the AL MVP favorite um, out of the shoot in his rookie year. He seems to have gotten like terrifyingly strong this winter. <laughs> I saw. You know, everyone has to post the video of themselves training for the season ahead. But I mean, if you ever should we do that as writers it... generally? Like, and if so, would it actually be like us? Working? Ben, you know, Ben would probably like you know win win the day uh, relative to the rest of us. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I I think that you know why don't we broaden that as a societal phenomenon? Well, I could give you a reason. <laughs> so uh, I it's all he Drew Pomeranz matters a little less now that you know Dombrowski did the whole thing to get Chris Sale because of course he was going to do that so Pomeranz is of lesser importance now than he was when the Red Sox got him last year but still he profiles as one of their top five starting pitchers pending whatever is going on with Stephen Wright but I was curious because when uh when the Marlins made their trade with the Padres and they didn't get all the information they were given the opportunity to uh kind of walk it back and they did at least to a certain extent Yep. And the Red Sox, I would say, fell victim to the same little scam on Preller's front office's behalf. But uh, they seemed to, well, obviously they didn't undo it, even though they did pay a uh, a heavy price to get Pomeranz. So do you, do you have any additional insight into why the Red Sox didn't pounce on the chance to undo that if they even thought about it at all? I mean, you know, they, they had to think about it since the commissioner gave them the, you know, <laughs> since Major League Baseball said you can rescind this trade and undo it. Um, you know, that was prior to the trade deadline. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they were they weren't but it was close to the trade deadline. So they, they faced the question of whether or not, you know, of whether or not they trusted their rotation to remain stable. Uh, in the absence of an additional uh, of an additional kind of you know pitcher who had been performing at a high level for much of the year to that point, at that point, Clay Buckholz had been terrible in the in the starting rotation. Eduardo Rodriguez had been terrible in the starting rotation. Stephen Wright was injured at that, or I guess he wasn't injured at that point. But you know there were I guess questions as to whether he had started his performance had started to fade at least a little bit, and so. I guess that overall, they just kind of, you know, I, I think that the simple answer is that they were putting an awfully big premium on what they thought they might be able to do in 2016 um, and somewhat less stock in what the future value of Anderson Espinosa was. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think that they were, you know, I, I had had Eduardo Rodriguez or Clay Buckholz kind of turned around their seasons in a more timely fashion. Uh, then perhaps that would have been a different conversation. But under the circumstances, it was it was fair for them to wonder whether or not they had a black hole at the back of their rotation that was ultimately going to wipe out their season in a pretty competitive AL East. Where at that point, I th- I'm, I believe that you know when they were being asked these questions, they were already behind the Orioles in the standings, and um, and they they were in a kind of tenuous spot in late July. It really it looked like things might be slipping away from them a little bit, and so they they decided to you know to prioritize what was immediately possible. Uh, there was kind of grumbling and moaning about how, you know, oh, well, we should have been given an opportunity to um, to kind of redo the deal in a way that would have been more fair to get some kind of, you know, maybe get Espinoza, Anderson Espinoza back and give a different pros- uh, you know, prospect. But, you know, I think that Rob Manfred made a kind of fair point in that it's not his job to to decide on you know, on what that appropriate alternative would have been. It was mm-hmm. his job to present the the two alternatives. You can keep the trade or you can undo the trade. And that was kind of about as far as he could go. 
So at Sabre Seminar in 2014, I heard, and I'm sure you heard Alex Ben Sherrington talking about what the Red Sox were trying to do at the time, and they were very concerned with how they could get the most out of their players. He was making the point that every team has a good projection system. Everyone sort of has that basic estimate of how good players are going to be. And so the differentiator is getting players to perform at the top of their projection range as opposed to the middle or the bottom. And wasn't clear that they knew how to do that at the time, but maybe now they've figured out an answer, as you just wrote a couple days ago, about their pitching plan, their Brian Bannister-led effort to maximize their pitching staff's potential. So can you tell us a little bit about how that works and maybe what dividends it's paid or or perhaps will pay in the future? Well, you know, and I think that Bannister, I don't remember if he was at the 2014 Sabre Seminar or if he was uh, or if he was only at the 2015, but hey, great event. We both attend, right? Um, <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, I mean, Brian Bannister came in and I, I think that it would be a little bit of an exaggeration to say that the Red Sox sees, you know, the Red Sox, the performance of the Red Sox pitching staff pivoted based on his involvement with it. He came in uh, in the middle of the year, but there were anecdotally like stories of ways in which his ability to communicate and, you know, for background's sake, I guess, for those who aren't familiar with Brian Bannister, he had been kind of a fringe big leaguer who was really at the kind of forefront of using pitch effects data to reconceive of what was possible and changing and kind of altering, um, altering the view of what his upside might be. So he was a fringe big leaguer who ended up pushing himself into a role as, you know, in his words, kind of a back end starter. Um, he was, you know, uh, with the, with the Royals, he enjoyed, uh, one year of considerable success in which there was some Babbitt block that was associated with it. Uh, but there was also some intelligence about execution, um, turning over his arsenal to be a cutter heavy arsenal, uh, from a traditional fastball arsenal. And he just became a better pitcher. He, he worked with Zach. He talked about, uh, about, early pitch effects data with Zach Granke and Zach Granke was very open-minded about it and changed his usage and saw, you know, and, and, you know, in part because of some of the adjustments he made in reconceiving of, of how and why he should be using pitches. He had the monster 2009 season that got him his, uh, his Cy Young award. And, you know, Bannister is someone who approaches things from a very interesting perspective. I, I think that he's, he's not working solely, you know, he's not, the sole reason for it, but he's part of a more kind of integrated, holistic look at, um, at pitchers that the Red Sox are undertaking. Uh, they've been able to make, I think that they've been able to, to, that Bannister's ability as a communicator has maybe helped the coaching staff, the manager, you know, the manager to communicate potential changes, to communicate about potential changes with pitchers in a way that they find compelling. He bridges that ability to speak the language of pitchers, having been one in the major leagues, and also to kind of speak the language of data that's, um, that is very, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so for instance, Clay Buckholz, we mentioned earlier, uh, he had struggled a great deal through the first half of the season. Buckholz actually was the one who said, I think that maybe my arm slot might have dropped a little bit. And he looked at some video and he was like, I think so. And Bannister looked at the video with them and they kind of identified where the arm slot adjustment had been occurring. They worked in bullpen sessions using TrackMan stuff in order to, you know, in order to raise the, the arm slot back to where it should be. And the results were considerably different after he uh, enacted that change. Uh, he worked with a pitcher like Joe Kelly to alter from, you know, I, well, 
not just Bannister, but the entirety of the, you know, of the Red Sox organization, including uh, when Kelly was down in AAA. But there was a well-communicated, well-articulated, like, plan of, you know, let's let's move maybe away from being a constant two-seam guy with, you know, who's leaning heavily on a curveball and sometimes working in the slider to being, you know, nasty four-seam plus wipeout slider guy. And, I mean, he was a an absolutely dominant performer uh, in September and October. His swing and miss rates were kind of stupid in the playoffs, honestly. So there's just, I, I feel like, you know, this this is something that, the, it's not unique to the Red Sox by any stretch of the imagination. Travis Sawchick of Fangraphs has written a whole damn book about how the Pirates were able to overhaul their pitching staff um, in mm-hmm. their run prevention by engaging in things like this, reconsidering the arm slot that a pitcher is working with, reconsidering his pitch usage and his pitch mix and what counts he's working he's working in. But, you know, there are tangible results. Rich Hill is one of them. Rich Hill gives a lot of credit to Brian Bannister for the progress he was able to make in, reconsider, in reconsidering his arsenal. Buckholz and, uh, and Kelly are others. Um, so if, if you're able to do that, I, I think that you're absolutely right, Ben. You know, the way that Brian Bannister describes it is if you're able to kind of tap into the upside of what you can be, you know, then then you're really doing something. And to me, I mean, that's that is transformative. That's what the Red Sox for a number of years had honestly failed to do with their uh, rotation in 20 in, with their pitching staff in a lot of 2014, 2015 and what they did really well in 2016. This is convenient because I'll just ask you a question so you can say all of those same words again. Because I was <laughs> going to ask you about Joe Kelly. Uh, you know, you go back and you go back to the John Lackey trade that the Red Sox made with the Cardinals, and I think it, it would be safe to say Alan Craig kind of pulled a reverse Sandy Leone, I guess. <laughs> so he's, you know, he, I don't even know if he's still around. We, this isn't about he's, Alan Craig. No. Yeah, other. Alan Craig is uh, Alan Craig is is in big league camp uh, this year, but yeah, I mean, he's uh, the likelihood that he ends up being. Uh, on the major league roster is very low in part because, you know, he's more valuable not being on the major, on the 40 man roster by virtue of the ability to avoid the, the luxury tax hit on him. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, the, uh, coming with Craig was one Joe Kelly who was always, and even into last year, who was a very frustrating starting pitcher because he had the really good stuff, et cetera. And then, uh, last year upon his conversion. So this is from July on. This includes the minor leagues. It does not include the playoffs, but Joe Kelly pitched in 30 games combined. He had eight walks, 51 strikeouts, an ERA of 1.19. Opponents slugged 265. And his, uh, his average fastball in the major leagues was 98. 0.2 miles per hour. He basically threw as hard as harder than any reliever except for Chapman and uh, Mauricio Cabrera. So Joe Kelly is maybe one of the quieter names in the bullpen that's got it. Craig Kimbrell, the new acquisition in Tyler Thornburg. Of course, Carson Smith is coming back, but Kelly is there and he uh, he's got a wide open lane to being a very important reliever in that staff. And so are you now Having had been through some of the Joe Kelly experience, would you say that you are now comfortable with Joe Kelly as a high leverage important reliever? I, I think that it, it's going to require a bit more to convince me of that uh, because I, I I still wonder about his ability to remain healthy, um, which has mm-hmm. been uh, which has dogged him for at different points in his career, and um, he he doesn't have a great deal of experience, at least you know at least that I've seen firsthand, you know back to back days and all of that sort of stuff. I don't I don't know how whether or not he ends up being an Andrew Millerish. Uh, type of guy or not who you can go the multi innings route and all of that, all of that good stuff. So that, that remains to be determined. And then of course, there's also, look, Joe Kelly finished 2015 producing about as much optimism as Rick Porcello, slightly less, but almost as much because he, you know, he won, 
<laughs> I know wins, whatever. But uh, but you know he he was he, he won seven straight starts to close out you know to close out the 2015 season before the season you know before the season was stopped with an injury. But he he looked really good. He looked like he had kind of figured out the mix that he needed in order to be a good starter. And then he showed up in spring training this year, and that was kind of gone. So. Um, although he was also injured again in spring training in 2016. So maybe that derailed him before he could really get going again. But um, I, I think that there have to be caveats. Uh, there, there have to be caveats. But I think that, you know, the upside is enormous. He, you know, he was he, he looked totally dominant in in that season ending stretch in September in the playoffs. Uh, you could see it against a very good Indians offense in the playoffs. Um, he, he looked he looks like a different kind of animal than he'd ever been at any other point that I had seen him in his career, and I think than he was at any other point in his career. Yeah, it's pretty interesting because often we talk about how teams know much more about their own players than other teams do or that certainly we do on the outside and often our suggestions are ill-informed in some way, but people were talking about how much sense it seemed to make to convert Joe Kelly to the bullpen for, what, two years before a team actually tried it? It took a while and it seemed like such an obvious good fit for a long time given his arsenal and his struggles in the rotation so i guess score one for the bloggers who <laughs> suggested that a couple of years ago and maybe for the cardinals who had also kind of been on that train i, I, mm-hmm. I suppose although he had looked good when he was uh at the start of 2014 when he was in the cardinals rotation up until he got injured Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this is one that you'd have to speculate about, but Jeff has written about how much Chris Sale was hurt last season by going from good framing catchers in 2015 to very poor framing catchers in 2016, and he should have better luck in that respect with the Red Sox, particularly if you're right about Vasquez stealing some playing time. So maybe he just gets a boost from that, but I'm curious about whether this tinkering with pitchers plan that the Red Sox have will include getting him to go back to a strikeout sort of approach because he always has been a strikeout pitcher primarily. And then last year he adopted this more pitch to contact approach and he was still very good. And maybe it even helped him get a little bit deeper into games, but just on a better per batter basis, he wasn't quite as overpowering as he had been in the past. And I wonder whether the Red Sox kind of roll back the clock on sale and get him to go back to pre 2016 self I, I don't know do you have any insight on which which sale they might prefer I, I think they're happy with with uh, any Chris sale I think they would be happy with 2016 Chris sale or 2015 Chris sale frankly um, <laughs> I, I don't think that uh, I, I don't think that's an area that's a realm where you get too uh, where you get too picky um, yeah. but um, I, that'll that'll be an interesting one my guess is that they'll end up being kind of as much as they were with David Price last year, right? They, you know, they kind of trusted David Price to make adjustments that he wanted to make. And, uh, and then, you know, when, when results started going badly, that's when you kind of have a more concerted effort to sit down and think about what exactly is going wrong. And so I, I think that in, you know, in, in Price's case, for instance, there was a hand position issue that was identified initially by Dustin Pedroia and then that they were able to, identify more broadly and then David Price adjusted that and then he stopped adjusting that but he was still good um so there's there's also the great you know maybe who knows maybe it was just a great placebo um but uh in answer to your question 
I don't know. My guess is that they won't. They my guess is that they're not going to take uh, the first the, the, Chris Sale's first spring training to say, you know what, you should really do. Maybe you should change back to a pitch mix, you know, that you uh, weren't going to pursue by default. Because I think they would be pretty happy with exactly who he was in, in 2016. Mm-hmm. And do you have any sense of which way the front office leans as far as philosophy, if there's a way to pinpoint it? Because there's been a lot of turnover this winter. Of course, the people who left to join the Red Sox and also Tom Tippett, the longtime mm-hmm. head of the stat department, moved on. So is this a more Dombrowski-flavored front office as far as old-school kind of sensibility? Or, I don't know, has this kind of uh, progressive mindset been in place for so long that at this point they're just sort of blending all the approaches like every other team? I mean, I, you, every team is going to is going to blend in. They, they still have a, uh, a sizable analytics department, but I, I think that it, it would be it would be naive, naive to suggest that Dombrowski isn't, you know, isn't more reliant on his pro scouting staff than uh, than, you know, than any of the than his predecessors, either Ben Sherrington or Theo Epstein. Those guys welcomed the pro scouting side in, into the conversation with, I think that, but Dombrowski is, you know, he, he is beloved by pro scouts as a general rule of thumb because he'll involve, you know, if, if a pro scout is, rather than going with the pro scouting director and just seeking his input on a trade, like Dombrowski will seek out the direct feedback um, of the pro scout in uh, in making decisions, he'll do that in conjunction with feed with a number of different kind of layers of feedback. Um, you know, he does uh, he does kind of have you know the the analytic the you know various there are various like analytic the Red Sox analytics department remains robust and it continues to offer feedback, um, particularly on weighting the uh, weighting the net present value of you know, uh, prospects versus major league talent and trades, that sort of thing. But I, I think that there, there is, there is a different sensibility with Dombrowski. It would be naive to suggest otherwise. It would be naive to think that anyone else, you know, that, uh, that either Ben Sherrington or Theo Epstein, uh, would have traded this many high ceiling young prospects. Um, mm-hmm. even, even given the returns that, uh, even given the kind of, you know, impressive players who were received in return. All right. Well, do you want to give us a win total prediction? And if you don't, could you do it anyway? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I, I hate predictions. Uh, <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, so I guess with the caveat that I think that uh, with the caveat that, you know, probabilistic models are sensible and, you know, and we should be looking at things through the error bar of like the Red Sox will win more than 70 games and fewer than 120. Um, I would say that beyond that, I'm going to, I'm going to go and just say 90, 93 seems like a great number to me. Yeah. I think we're just going to edit out all the caveats and just put you on the number. (laughs) That sucks. Yeah, no, I, piece yeah. together little bits of your voice. To I should, you make know you what? Yeah, I sound should, more confident I should about call that. It like, no, I should. I should. Uh, I don't know which would be more interesting if I called them like an eighty-six win team or a one hundred two win team. I don't know. I, I don't know. You, you guys can go ahead. I would. I would like to hear. Here, I'll just list off every number in succession so that you can then edit it together as you'd like. So, like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Do it that way. <laughs> Could you proceed each and every one of them with "I know for a fact the Red Sox are going to win"? <laughs> I know that the Red Sox will 
(laughs) (laughs) All right. You can find Alex making bold predictions constantly (laughs) on Twitter at Alex Spear. You can read him at the Boston Globe. And even if you're not particularly invested in Boston sports, he is always an interesting read. So thank you, Alex. Really a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having Thank me you on. Much. It was the it was the fine antidote to my lengthy day on planes. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back with Zach Buchanan on the Reds. Clouds say hush, but the chainsaws mush on to Custer and Columbia. Salty tentacles shrink in the sun, but the red tide is over. The Okay, so longtime listeners know that it's an unofficial policy of this podcast not to talk about the Cincinnati Reds. It's not a conscious decision we made. It's really a decision that's been made for us by the Reds, who have not made a whole lot of baseball news over the last couple of years. And luckily for us, they just made some baseball news on the <laughs> day that we were scheduled to talk about them with one of the writers who covers them for the Cincinnati Inquirer, and one of the podcasters who does the Reds Beat podcast with C. Trent Rosecrans, Zach Buchanan. Hey, Zach. Hi, how are you guys? We're doing okay. Yeah. So you also wrote the Reds essay for the Baseball Prospectus Annual, and maybe we can start there because you sort of did a profile of Reds GM and president of baseball operations, Dick Williams, who was recently the butt of Jeff's joke on this podcast not long ago because he has a very generic old GM sort of name, and he's probably one of the least known GMs, certainly on the national stage, which I guess goes along with the Reds not being discussed. So <laughs> since you talked to him and you wrote about him, tell us about Dick Williams. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad that people like that. I actually haven't seen it yet. My uh, annual came like literally an hour after I left for the airport. So, <laughs> so I, haven't, I, haven't seen, I hope it turned out well. Uh, I, I think Dick uh, really knows what he's doing. And I kind of make a crack uh, about that in, in the essay uh, a little bit too, that he is just kind of a generic name and he's a bit of an outsider. And so not a lot of people know a ton about him. Uh, he does not come from a baseball background. He was in finance. He worked for George W. Bush's reelection campaign. Uh, so he has kind of different experiences than a lot of people. But uh, for the last 10 years, I mean, he's been in this organization and he's been kind of learning the ropes from the very bottom of the front office. And uh, he's seen what works for, for other teams that have kind of done this the modern way, I guess, like the Cubs have done it and like the the Royals and the Pirates. And uh, he very much wants to model the Reds like that. And uh, I, I think he has a very good idea of what he's doing. And he is, uh, thankfully for Trent and I, very uh, interested in making sure the fans understand the process. And so we get to talk with him a lot about why they do certain things and, and uh, the approach they're trying to take. And uh, so uh, I, I think as GMs, other GMs are getting to, to a feel for him, they're, they're, they're going to be maybe impressed as a super strong word, but they're going to realize that, you know, this guy knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He answers emails, which was apparently not a strength of Walt Jockety. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Walt did not relish talking to people. Walt's a very ni- nice person. <laughs> But uh, Dick is uh, much more responsive and expansive when he talks, and uh, he reads everything and anything that anybody writes about the Reds, even you know some fan blog. If it gets like pulled into his news app, he reads it, uh, and I don't I don't know how he stays sane, 
but uh <laughs> yeah he's uh he's very into kind of what how people are talking about the reds so he, you know he probably doesn't listen to you guys much then <laughs> <laughs> well maybe today so <laughs> yeah one of the things that he did most recently is trade brandon phillips on what maybe his fifth attempt to do so or or the reds collective fifth attempt to do so phillips went to the braves he finally waived his limited no trade clause to make that happen and i think from afar we look at this and Brandon Phillips was just an obstacle. He was the guy who was blocking a couple other younger middle infielders who we'll probably ask you about soon. But just looking at tweets at you and Trent tonight, he seems to have been much more than that to Reds fans. And I see tweets saying the Reds just gave up their chance to have people buy tickets to Reds games this season. And Brandon Phillips, not someone I would think of as someone who sells tickets at this point. He's been a a below average hitter in each of the last four seasons. He's been sometimes average-ish and sometimes worse, clearly past his prime as a player. But I guess he's also been with the Reds for a long time, and he was well-liked, it seems. Yeah, oh, he was very well liked. I mean, with, for the casual fan that doesn't understand kind of the business of baseball, doesn't understand why a guy who hit 290 but only has like a 315 on base percentage is really not getting it done to the level that he needs to. But, but Brandon was so out there in public and accessible to the fans and loved signing autographs and was very much a fan favorite in that way. Uh, just for people to come to the park. I mean, if you could you know, blend Brandon's love of the spotlight and, and how he handles it with like everything else that Joey Votto does. You'd have like the perfect superstar player. So, I mean, I can understand how Reds fans are disappointed by it because for a lot of them, Brandon is that, that, that guy that, you know, that if you're a little kid, you grew up idolizing just because of, the, you know, his personality and stuff like that. But, you know, half of my mentions are, 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 you know, upset that he's gone, but a lot of Reds fans get it that it was time and they're, they're sad to see him go, but they recognize that that relationship between him and the Reds is going to end one way or another. And this is probably like the least dramatic way it could happen because they had to get the young guys playing time. It would really be a disservice to the to kind of the whole rebuild the organization's going through if they just kept running out Brandon Phillips for 150 games or something this year. And, you know, Jose Peraza was bouncing around the infield and Dilson Herrera was in the minors. Uh, it wasn't going to solve anything. So this this went about as well as, as anyone could have planned it. I wonder, maybe maybe Brandon Phillips didn't really like sell tickets, but maybe he literally would sell tickets. He would just go out in the community and sell <laughs> Reds tickets. I think one of the reasons that Dick Williams has probably had a lower profile among, I guess I can't speak for all baseball fans, but let's I'll go ahead and do it. All baseball fans, a, a lower profile, is that he, he sort of inherited a roster where a lot of the, the major work was already done in terms of beginning the rebuild and getting pieces out. So he's recently moved to Dan Straley, who was kind of a, a clever grab, and he just moved Brandon Phillips. So at this point, what else, if anything, is there for him to do in terms of the selling? Or is it now just about drafting and developing and seeing what they have in-house? Uh, well, the, the obvious step left to, in terms of selling is to find a home for Zach Cozart. And, and who knows if that'll happen because no one needs a shortstop on a one-year deal right now. Uh, I think if someone gets hurt, then, you know, Zach Cozart's the first person any team's going to think of. But in terms of kind of how they've outlined the, the plan, I, I think that that portion of it is pretty much over. Uh, Joey Votto, they have no intention of trading. 
And uh, I wrote about it during the winter meetings, even if they did, he'd be almost impossible to move just because of the contract he's on and his no trade clause and all the other hurdles you'd have to clear. So I think they're pretty much done. But there's there's an alternate route that they could take that they don't seem to want to take because it would signal to the fans of Cincinnati that the rebuild's going to take a lot longer than the fans have been told. And that's if they wanted to really be aggressive and move Billy Hamilton if they wanted to move Anthony DiSclefani, who's probably the best kind of trade candidate or trade bait they have on the team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this winter, especially with kind of the prices you were seeing for pitchers, you probably could have gotten a pretty decent package for Anthony DiSclefani. I mean, if they got what they got from the Marlins for Dan Straley, I mean, I shudder to think at what the, the price that they, they could have extracted for Disco. But they, they, they don't seem really interested in going that route. They see those guys as being part of the next competitive Reds team. To a lot of outside observers, that may be overly optimistic, but that they they'd like to kind of keep those guys here. But I mean, who knows? Maybe if the the young guys aren't progressing earlier early this season, and then maybe those guys become names at the trade deadline. But in terms of just like clearing like big money guys off the books, I mean, they've done about as much as they can do, unless. Homer Bailey, you know, comes back after missing the first month and a half of the season and just absolutely looks awesome. And Devin Mesoraco resurrects his 2014 self. I mean, then those guys suddenly become, you know, trade candidates. But from now, like, you've pretty much scraped it bare, so it's time to build back up, I think. Disco there. I hadn't heard that. Maybe it's a popular nickname in Cincinnati, but officially that is now a, a nickname you've said that is not included on his baseball reference page. So it, It's not. That's surprising not. me. Yeah, Everybody yeah. calls him Disco here. Yeah, no, I like that. I guess if you were to trade him in a rebuild, that would be Disco Demolition. But moving on to something that's not so terrible. You <laughs> mentioned Miserocco, so there's no point in, in waiting to get back to that. Clearly, he had a huge breakout season the last time that his hips weren't preventing him from motion and it was uh, one of the biggest I think offensive breakouts in at least recent history just in terms of what he had been the year before and then what he became and that quickly he became not even not a starting catcher but not an active catcher at all so to what extent is moving forward is it just kind of a shrug and you have no idea what you're going to get or are the Reds actually feeling confident that they're going to have a Devin Mazzaraca who can actually catch say 90 100 games in a year I, I don't I think confidence is a strong word I think they're cautiously optimistic because I mean they've been down this road with him before already mm-hmm. um and this injury that really ended his season last year was a shoulder injury and they feel like they got that fixed but then they went and repaired his other hip kind of proactively just because they thought that it could have problems down the road. So in theory, he should be the most flexible he's ever been in his life. But he obviously has not been healthy in a while. And uh, I think the Reds sometimes have a bad habit of being overly optimistic uh, when they kind of project when guys will be healthy. So they'll say, oh, yeah, we expect him to be, you know, able to handle a full load by the beginning of the regular season. And I, I, I doubt that happens. I think it, mm-hmm. in the best case scenario, they're kind of easing him in. Not that he can't do it, but they're going to, yeah, they did a little bit with Zach Cozart at the beginning of last, last year. You know, I think Tucker Barnhart's still going to catch a good deal, but they think that Devin's going to be healthy enough to catch. Uh, the bigger question for me is whether he can hit because it's been so long since he did it consistently both in terms of performance and actually the physical act of going to the plate. And uh, that that I don't think anybody has the answer to. Uh, I think Devin traces his breakout season to kind of some mechanical changes he made where he, he just kind of sold out on trying to pull the ball and recognizing that was like where he did the most damage. But, I mean, 
it's been so long. I don't, I don't know that anybody has any idea what he's going to be able to produce. Um, but he, he said, we talked to him at Reds Fest, which they have before the winter meetings in December. And he said that, you know, if he's healthy and if he's playing the way that he expects to play, then he should be the starter. So I think that's the bar he's setting for himself. So Jeff got a lot of mileage last season out of tracking the ineptitude of the Reds pitching staff. And oh, man. he found that it was the only pitching staff ever, or at least since 1900, to be a sub-replacement pitching staff, according to Fangraph's version of war. What's the outlook this year? Is there <laughs> any chance for a well, repeat? Are they going to be in positive territory? <laughs> uh, I think they'll be better, but I think that I felt a lot better about it before Homer Bailey needed another surgery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because but before even before Homer got hurt, if you looked at what you had going into the season, just about the only person that, in my opinion, you could feel confident would give you the number and type of innings that you were looking for was Anthony Disclafani. And then the rotation behind him was Scott Feldman. And before it was Scott Feldman, it was Dan Straley, who had kind of come out of nowhere. You had Brandon Finnegan, who had a solid first season in the rotation, but I don't know that you look at what he did and say, like, I'm for sure going to get that next year. And then you had Homer, who is, you know, the Devin Mesoraco of pitchers. Um, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of track record there in a lot of ways that I could say that, you know, I'm going to get the innings I need out of this staff. I think the bullpen is way better than it was because that, that was really the biggest issue at the beginning of last year is just the bullpen was just a tire fire. But then – Rysel Iglesias and Michael Lorenzen got healthy and really stabilized the back end. Uh, Blake Wood had a solid year, and now they've added Drew Storen into that mix, who who should be at least more competent than the people they had at the beginning of last year when they were running out Steve Delabar to walk the bases loaded twice and, and walk in a couple <laughs> runs. Um, so th- I think that they should be better, but the rotation is a huge question mark because you, you've got three spots filled right now. Two spots open. Maybe they still go out and get a veteran to fill that fourth spot. But even whoever that is, you're, you don't exactly know what you're going to get out of that guy. And then none of the young pitchers, as intriguing as they may be, have done anything to suggest that they're going to be able to come in and consistently get outs. Um, I still feel pretty good about Cody Reed as a, a prospect, but he really had a rough go of it last year. Uh, Robert Stevenson has just had a really rough year, especially towards the end of the majors. And it, it just seems like a confidence thing with him. And then all the guys below that that didn't get in the majors, uh, Amir Garrett, Nick Traviezo, Sauermano, all those guys they like, Rookie Davis, you know, you, you hope for the best. But if last year is any example, like those guys come up and it doesn't mean they're going to succeed just because they had success in AAA. So uh, it's it could be a scramble to fill those innings. I'm a little scared of it because, I mean – just one injury and then suddenly you're right back to where you were last year. So you have to hope for the best. And I don't, and I know they're thinking about adding Bronson Arroyo. That's probably going to happen tomorrow or I don't know when this is going out. It'll have happened Monday maybe, but even him, like he Bronson's not convinced he can do a starters load. The Reds aren't convinced. So I'm not sure where those innings are going to come from. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, just uh, just for the sake of having some numbers, first half Reds bullpen last year negative three point nine wins above replacement, so a, a positive three point nine wins below replacement. So that were easily last place by about three wins. But second half Reds they moved from thirtieth place up to twenty eighth, where their bullpen WAR was zero point one. But regarding the interesting players in the bullpen, you can you have a pretty reliable almost looks like top three or four. But, you know, you weren't getting out of this without a rye sale. Iglesias question and uh, his his present and future. So 
their their amount of concern about his shoulder and durability is uh is he basically done being a starter for ever is he set where he is i i don't think the door is all the way closed but it you probably have to like jimmy it open if you're going to get it open again because he he is so slight bodied and has had those shoulder injuries that they do feel like just health wise he's better off in the bullpen and he feels that way too he's talked about how he thinks it'll prolong his career and then also he's like pumping 98 out of the bullpen now and he's just he just looks nasty he's the easily the most exciting pitcher to watch on the team mm-hmm. uh and so i i would guess that he he never starts again but i wouldn't rule out them fiddling with it one time in spring training maybe not this year but in the future I mean, it's just so enticing just to think of what he could do as a starter because he is so talented. But I'm not sure he could hold up. Well, I guess so. This is your this is your second year, but maybe maybe it gets tiresome hearing about hard throwing Reds closers who might be potential starting <laughs> pitchers. We've gone through this chapter, but Ben had a question, and I didn't, so Ben can go now. <laughs> well, the big question in spring training was going to be about. Dilson Herrera and Jose Peraza and when were they going to play and where are they going to play and how much are they going to play and now maybe those aren't questions so much as how well will they play because they they are going to play it looks like so what do you think about how good these guys are now and in the future uh oh well, I have no clue about Dilson Herrera because we I went down to AAA Louisville at least once to try and get a glimpse of him but he was dealing with that shoulder injury that he apparently got because he slept funny on the bus when he was with the Mets but uh, Peraza, I, th- I think Peraza has upside. I don't believe in his second half. I don't think he's that good. He is so contact heavy. But, uh, I mean, you know, has a reputation of being a light-hitting guy. But he's uh, he's pretty muscular for a guy his, for his frame. I mean, he doesn't look like a little slap-hitting type of guy. I think he's got more power than, than, than a lot of, you know, casual fans realize. And so I think he could have success. I don't think he's going to hit 324 or anything. And he's certainly not going to walk much. But uh, I think if he really kind of nails down kind of the finer points of playing defense at short, that could be a place for him. And certainly he could survive at second. But I I wonder if you get the amount of offense you need out of him. Because it's hard to have him and Billy Hamilton on the same team since they do a lot of the same things. Dilson Herrera, uh, I'm eager to get to see, even though we're going to miss him when he's in the World Baseball Classic. But uh, certainly his power is legit. And he's supposed to be able to be play a pretty good second base. But, uh, I mean, we just haven't known from the Reds, at least since he's come over, has really gotten a chance to get a prolonged look at him. So I, I'm, I'm not sure about him as, as I feel a little better about Peraza. But, uh, I, I do still think there's a bit of a question as how much they play. I think Peraza is going to get his at bats, no problem. But I th- still think there's a chance that Dilson spends a decent amount of time in AAA. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned Billy Hamilton. And so he's, of course, one of the other players that you can't get around because he remains. Maybe the most fascinating player on the team. It kind of depends what you make of Votto. But given what Hamilton was offensively last year, if he if that just is who he is, one of the best defensive outfielders on the planet, clearly the best base runner in the game, but you know, still not a very great hitter, would the Reds be happy with this version of Billy Hamilton? Or are they still really, not desperate, but do they, do they really think and expect him to improve? Or are they happy with what he is right now? I think they are moderately happy with what he is. I, I mean, I think the numbers show that he's still like maybe a two-win player or something just based on his defense and base running, you know, even if he hits terribly. But they are pretty encouraged by the uh, progress he made in the second half of last season before he had the oblique injury and got hurt and he was working counts more. And B- Billy loves to talk about it and, and kind of all the, the tutelage he's gotten from Joey Votto about, about hitting and how to approach things. He's become more of a student and watches more film and 
actually thinks about his approach, whereas before he was kind of going up there just saying, don't strike out, don't strike out, don't strike out, oh, I struck out. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I think that Billy is really motivated to get better. But, you know, this, this is only my second year, and Reds fans have been he- hearing this for forever, so maybe I'm just being, like, drawn in by it. But uh, I, I do think they, they have hopes that he can be that, that type of player that uh, can, can put it all together and just may, maybe not put it all together, but get on base enough to really make his base running legitimately scary or at least scarier than it is already. But uh, I think it's still a big question mark. And certainly his defensive skills, while amazing and fun to watch, are kind of being wasted in a bit of a this kind of tiny ballpark. I know it's mm-hmm. one of Trent's favorite things to think about, like how many all-star games Billy would make if he played at Coors Field. <laughs> Yeah. So, but uh, so I I can see why other teams would be would be interested in him. But uh, I I do think they think there's more in there. Otherwise, I think when teams came calling on him to try and you know tr- you know ask if he was available this winter, they would have maybe been a little more aggressive with that if they thought this is just what he was. The answer is uh, Juan Pierre made zero All Star games when he played at Coors. I didn't know that, but there's one sort of indirect answer. I guess he only had yeah. three years there. <laughs> yeah, we talked about. Phillips being a guy who sold tickets, but Vado and Hamilton would be two of my top people I'd pay to see. And Vado is now the newest, or Vado is now the new longest tenured red. And he's kind of been the opposite of Phillips in that Phillips is maybe the type of player who gets overrated by casual fans, and Vado is the type who gets underrated by casual fans. So, what's the state of Cincinnati's? I guess, how does the city of Cincinnati feel about Joey Votto now? Has he been embraced any more than he was in past seasons when people would criticize him for being passive or perceive his patience as passivity? It's split. There are plenty of Joey Votto admirers who appreciate Joey. And there are plenty of people who just don't get Joey whatsoever. And Marty Brenneman, who does the radio calls, is a pretty big Joey critic. And right. he and I, he and I disagree on our evaluations of Joey as a baseball player. And so you get kind of old school Cincinnati that doesn't really value the type of things that Joey does at the plate. But then you've got plenty of, of kind of newer school fans that really do appreciate Joey and they appreciate kind of his heel act that he did last year and just all the <laughs> weird yes. Joey Votto things he does. I, I love mean, that. Uh, so you get plenty of people that love Joey and, you know, uh, he, he had that great quote about Mike Trout last year about how he's ruining things for everybody because now no one else can even pretend they're like the best in the game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think that there's plenty of appreciation for Joey, but there's, there's still plenty of like vocal, I don't know what, I don't want to say opposition, but people just don't, don't really understand Joey and, and Joey, it, I mean, if you're really into the analytical side of the game, he's he's so fascinating. But if you're the casual fan and he's just walking, you have to kind of watch him every day to gain an appreciation of the things he does. Whereas, you know, Billy will make a fantastic play and you catch it on the highlight reel. It's rare that you see anything Joey does on the highlight reel. So I, I, it's pretty split down the middle from what I can tell. And maybe we can close with Michael Lorenzen, who was one of the very few Reds relievers who pitched well last season. And you wrote a really nice story about him just before the weekend. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Uh, yeah, he is, uh, he's got an incredible backstory. And I was really lucky that he like, trusted me not to screw it up. He, uh, a lot of Reds fans, their favorite moment of the season last year, and I don't know how much it kind of bled outside of Cincinnati, was... 
his first game back in August from uh, visiting his dad who died while he was away. He came back and came into a game to relieve and plausibly got a chance to hit. And, of course, he was a two-way player at, at Cal State Fullerton and hit a first-pitch home run off of Pedro Baez. It was really, really emotional and kind of the, the biggest moment of the red season and what everybody fondly remembers and Michael had kind of talked about his relationship with his dad uh, before, but no one had really gone in depth about it. But his dad was a pretty troubled guy when Michael was growing up, and he he drank and stole and all sorts of things. And uh, when Michael was 12, his dad fled the state. They, they grew up in Anaheim. He fled to Nevada because there was a warrant out for his arrest, and he never came back. And uh, Michael was probably already going to have kind of a, a bit of a raucous childhood anyway, but that kind of, he'd had no kind of supervision because his mom had to work and he drank and smoked and, and was kind of aimless. And it doesn't sound like he was going to be like some sort of criminal or anything, but he might not have become who he is today as a baseball player because he didn't really have the motivation. And then he, uh, when he was 17, uh, suddenly found God and he's very sincere about it. And it kind of totally flipped his life, life around. But uh, so I, I talked to him about his story growing up and then he has these very kind of deep and interesting feelings about his dad now and how he worries that the type of Christianity that Michael practices, the, the rules are pretty clear that either you accept God or, or you don't get into heaven. And so he is very concerned that his dad is in the other place and it, it really, it's really kind of torments him. And it was, I was kind of taken aback when he said that to me, I didn't expect him to express that. And so it's kind of, uh, my story kind of seeks to tell his story and kind of tell how he kind of came to peace with who his dad was and his relationship, his relationship with his dad and kind of the story behind everything that led to that home run. So it got a very nice reception. I'm very humbled by it. Yeah, we will link to it in the usual places and encourage everyone to go check it out. So we always end these things by asking for a win total prediction. So can you give us one? Uh, I did this on our podcast, and looking back on it, I, I was way too optimistic. Um, <laughs> this is your chance to Yeah, I'm going to course correct here. Of course, when I did this, Homer Bailey was healthy. Uh, I'm, and they had me, Brandon Phillips, probably. Yeah. Give me uh, – I think they're going to be better than last year. Give me uh, – I'm really backsliding here. 69 wins. All right, one so, game no, no, better me, than last give year. Me, give, me, give me 70 wins. I'll take 70 wins. All right, you're right on where Fangraphs is right now. Huh, okay. Is that enough to save Brian Price for another season? Oh, God, I have no idea. I think they have to be better out of the gate at least. But I, I'm kind of fascinated that he took the deal that he did because he's in the same exact spot he was last year where he's going to be getting questions about it. Mm -hmm. that, that's a good question. I don't think anything that's wrong with this team is Brian Price's fault. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it, it requires patience, and we'll see if, if the Reds have that patience. I think, I think Dick Williams probably does. I think Bob Castellini wants to win more than anything in the world and has shown a great amount of restraint recently in going through with this rebuild. So that's the big question there. All right. Well, you can find Zach writing for the Cincinnati Inquirer. You can find him on Twitter at Zach ENQ. And if you're fed up with how little Reds talk there is on Effectively Wild, you can find the Polar Opposite podcast, the Reds Beat <laughs> podcast, which is all Reds all the time with Zach and C. Trent. And you can find that on iTunes and all the usual places. Zach, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you very much. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. 
Five listeners who have done so already include Benjamin D. Nelson, Kyle Neufeld, Dan Roberts, Adam Yarkovsky, and Brendan Malone. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group, now over 5,300 members at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. I have a new episode of the Ringer MLB show up. We talked to Twins pitcher Glenn Perkins, who was great told us about his embraceive advanced stats and how he talks to his teammates about stats and his return from a torn labrum, among other topics. You can find that at the Ringer MLB feed. You can contact me and Jeff via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or by messaging us through Patreon. Send us your emails for our next episode, which will be an email show, and we'll talk to you then. When the red sun sets on the railroad town And the bars begin to laugh With a happy sound I'll still be here Right by your side There'll not be another In my heart but you We never consciously decided not to talk about the Reds. They sort of (laughs) decided for us in that uh, they don't give us a a ton to talk about these days. Uh Uh-oh, did I just lose Zach? You still there? We did. We lost Zach. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) This is actually working out just as discussed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is very appropriate. I mean, if we just do this for another 10 minutes, we're done. (laughs)